that passage that was read to us from 1 John chapter 2, and particularly the verses from verse 12 to 17. I remember in the last years of my teaching career, before I went full-time into Christian ministry, don't hate me, you young folk, I was a maths teacher, right? I know that's it's about the worst thing you can be, isn't it? But uh, I remember in the last year attending a training day about what Ofsted inspectors were looking for and expecting from teachers in lessons. And like most people there that day, my first reaction was to think, it's just impossible. There's no way I could do that. And I might as well pack the job in now before they tell me I'm no good at it. Well, the good teacher, the good trainer, the good parent, the good pastor knows how to encourage and make people feel able to achieve the tasks that are being set. My other role, apart from being a church pastor, as though that isn't a full-time role in itself, is I'm chaplain to a professional rugby league team. And I have the privilege of, of working with the players and the coaches. And our team has gained the reputation over recent years of overachieving. <laughs> and by that, what's meant is we've achieved far more than we probably ought to have done with the players and the squad we've got. And one of the reasons for that is because we've had a coaching staff who knew how to get the best out of people, how to get those players to achieve far more even than they thought they were capable of. Well, I'm sure you know that sort of situation. You've come across it. And you know the feeling that you're being asked to do something that's right and good, but it just feels impossible. You just think, however am I going to do that? Well, John here, remember we said last week he's an old man when he's writing this letter. He's got to the stage where he has to be carried into church on a, on a chair but he's full of wisdom and experience and a full of a desire for the children, as he calls them, my dear children, my little children. And it's said that when he was carried in, as he went through the congregation, he would be saying, dear children, love one another. He's asking them to do something amazing in this passage that we've read tonight, to stop loving the world and to really love their fellow believers and he knows how hard that is and I suspect that we do too I've often said I find it remarkably easy to love the Christians in China I love Chinese Christians but I find it so hard at times to love the Christian sat next to me on a Sunday morning <laughs> because the Christians in China I never have to meet. They never say anything to annoy me. <laughs> the person next to me 
won't stop wittering, always complains about something in the church meeting. You get where I'm coming from. It's hard. We know we should love them, but it's hard. And John wants to encourage us. He wants us to see that that's possible. Even though we find ourselves obsessed by our possessions, our homes, our work, our families. And as I say, we look around and we see one another's faults so easily. And so John is taking some time out here, particularly in verses 12 to 15, to encourage us, to encourage us to see that these things are possible. And they're reasonable because God has made provision. It's his will for this to be achieved. And therefore, this putting aside love for the world and being filled with love for our fellow believers is something that only Christians can do. It, only for believers. It's no good telling non-Christians to act in this way because quite simply, they cannot. It's no good telling people to behave as if they are Christians if they do not have Christ. Until we have our trust totally in Christ, we cannot act as Christians in the way that God wants us to. Christian ethics without Christian faith is a futile exercise. And so John doesn't just want these Christians to know how to live and behave. He wants them to do it. He wants them to carry it out. And he wants them to do that with confidence and to enjoy loving one another. The relationship with Christ is to be lived. It's not just to be talked about and studied. He understands how hard it is. He's asking something of us that is so, to use the jargon word, counterintuitive. The world says to us, what you need to do is look after yourself. Stand up for yourself. You stand up for your rights. You make sure you get what you want. That's what the world says to us. And God's word is saying to us, put others before yourself. Love your fellow Christians as you love yourself. Don't simply want what you want. Want what's good for the church, for your fellow believers. And so he wants to share the lessons that he has learned. He's an old man. He knew Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. And he's seen the church grow and develop. And he's got so much wisdom and experience now. And he wants to share it with the church. And he wants us to learn from it. And he's got three encouragements for us to make these things possible. And the first is simply this in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. That's the starting point of the Christian life. You were brought under a conviction of sin. You felt guilty. You felt unclean. You felt burdened. 
and then you asked God to forgive you because of what Jesus Christ had done for you. And at that moment, you were forgiven. It happened. It became a fact. It's a reality. It's not something that you're hoping might happen. It's not something you're thinking, well, if I stick at it and I'm good enough, maybe he'll forgive me. Isn't that the tragedy of Islam? You put yourself through all those rituals and all the fasting and all the rest of it in the hope that Allah might accept you. But the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your saviour, your sin is forgiven. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Christ has done it. And for some, the experience is like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, where they felt a great burden lifted off their back and laid at the feet of the cross. For others, the realisation is slower and it takes time to sink in. And it doesn't matter which was your experience of coming to Jesus. What matters is that your trust is in him now. And so your sins have been forgiven. What is more, all of your sins have been forgiven. Your bad record has been cleared on all future offences dealt with. The American preacher Al Martin always used to say that we have a twin problem. A bad heart and a bad record. And unless both of those are dealt with, our cause is hopeless. It's no good all our past being forgiven if our future is full of sin and condemnation. And it's no good our record being cleaned if our heart still wants to go on sinning. That's the twin problem we have. But when we come to Jesus, he deals with it in totality. Our bad record is wiped clean because he paid the price on the cross. Our bad heart is dealt with because, as he says, he gives a new heart. A new creation comes into being. We're born again when we trust in him. We are new. And so, you see, you don't have to be afraid, Christian friend, that there's something hidden that will pop out on judgment day and cause you to be rejected. I read recently of the leader of an anti-Semitic group in Hungary. Leader of a group who spent all his time opposing and saying how awful Jews are. And you know what? He suddenly found out that he was descended from a Jewish family. And his credibility now is totally destroyed. It's gone. Something popped out of the cupboard that he wasn't expecting and totally destroyed his position. But Christian friend, God knew you totally when he took you on. When Jesus forgave you, he knew everything. There is nothing that is going to jump out and surprise him and cause you to stumble when your trust is in him. 
God knows everything. Nothing can emerge to make him change his opinion. The act of forgiveness is complete. It's past. It's happened. It's finished. And so we live in the light of that. Now, that's not a license to do wrong. It doesn't mean we can then get away with anything. I don't know whether you've ever had been caught for a, a parking offence. I'll hold my hand up. I got caught once. I'd parked in a car park. I was the only car in the car park. And I had one wheel slightly over the white line behind the church in Dewsbury. And the traffic warden took a photograph and I got a £25 fine for that. <laughs> oh. But if you happen to be a member of an embassy, if you work for one of the embassies in London, you have exemption from all the parking regulations in London. So you can, you can do what you want, you can park where you want and you can't be touched. <laughs> oh. That's not how it's to be. We are to live in the light of being forgiven people, as God wants us to do. And John strengthens the message and underlines it to us by reminding us that this forgiveness is not a result of anything on our part, but it is on account of his name, for his name's sake, for Jesus' name. That's our hope and our certainty. Names used to have much more importance, didn't they? I arrest you in the name of the law. I once had to lead a delegation to the Minister of Education. But I wasn't allowed to do it in my own name. It had to be in the name of my Member of Parliament. I could only approach the Minister through the Member of Parliament. I had to use her name in order to speak to the Minister. Isn't it bizarre? And for those of you who remember the television series, it's the only time in my life where I ever found myself saying, yes, minister. <laughs> but the name of Jesus is our hope. Acts 2 and 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then in Acts 4 and 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. So we can have confidence in the forgiveness of our sin because it's all of Jesus. And if we can have confidence in the forgiveness of our sin, we can move on with the Christian life. And in verses 13 and 14, John reminds his dear children that you have overcome. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He's remembering how his children develop as young men, as fathers, but still rooted in their childhood. And he's particularly focusing here on the idea of Christians as young men, those who are active, alive, living out the Christian life. He says, you are strong. Do you realize that? Oh, you feel weak. You feel inadequate. 
You feel that you're less than you should be. Yet you have overcome. You have the victory. Victory over the evil one. He's defeated. He's not finished yet. But his end is certain. It's rather like I was reminded of it recently. Strangely, in the middle of winter, I found a wasp flying around my kitchen. And I hope there are no animal rights people here who are going to get upset by this. But I sprayed the wasp with fly spray, fly killer. And you know what happens? The wasp's doomed, isn't it? You know it's finished. But it doesn't give up immediately, does it? It keeps flapping and buzzing and moving. And you know what's going to happen to it. And that's like Satan, isn't it? That's like the evil one. That's like sin. It's defeated, but it's still flapping and buzzing. Its end is certain, but it isn't giving up without a fight. He says, you are strong. And what is the source of your strength? Not your natural ability, not your effort, but verse 14, it is through the word of God. The word of God abides in you. That's what makes a strong Christian friend, the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This book, the word of God, is vital to us in building that confidence and that certainty because the word of God is our power. We need to study our Bibles. We need to find out what it has to say. We need to increase our awareness of it and always turn back to it as the final referee on any issue. However much we respect and trust someone, unless they can support their case from the scripture, from the Bible, then we need to be very careful how we respond to what they say. There are many attractive leaders, powerful speakers and writers with great followings, who have strayed from the word of God and are harming God's people. We should never be overwhelmed or overawed by their cleverness if they cannot show us and point us to what the Bible says in support of their position. But equally, knowledge of scripture is not enough on its own. It has to be applied. It has to be lived out. And so thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6 and 17. Take the, whole, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So much confusion these days over the work of the Holy Spirit. But his primary work is not to make us healthy or wealthy. He may graciously do those things, but many of God's great servants over the years have suffered ill health and poverty. But the work of the Spirit is to point us to Christ and to make real to us the things of God. 
If you read God's word and understand what it means, then that is the spirit at work in you. If you find encouragement from God's word at any time, that is the spirit at work in you. That's why we must hold God's word in the highest esteem, both as individuals and as churches. Encouragement number two, you've overcome. But let's move on to the best of John's three encouragements. You have known the Father. The end of verse 13 there, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. When all is said and done, the Christian life is primarily a relationship with God. It's that which makes it different from all other religion. It's not an endeavour to win his favour. It's not working towards one day finding him. It's not a search for truth, but it is being in communion with a living, sovereign, gracious, eternal person. And throughout it all, he remains the same as he has always been. Psalm 90 begins a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you know what? This is the one who you can now call Father. What an amazing thing that is. You have this intimate, caring relationship with one who is eternally great, perfect, holy, the judge of all humankind. I remember one year being near the Garden of Remembrance in Dewsbury just before Armistice Day. And a very grand looking lady arrived in a chauffeur driven car. And she got out and she went and picked up one of the crosses of remembrance and she wrote a name on it as people did. And I thought, ah, she went and placed it amongst all the others. I kept watch where she placed it. I took note of where it was. And when she left, I went up to see what name was written on it. And I thought, this grand lady in a chauffeur-driven car. I wonder what it's going to say. I expect it will be Major General Hoity-Toity or some great important person. And when I looked at the cross, it had three letters written on it. D-A-D. You see, however grand and important this man had been to others, to her, he was her dad. That was what mattered to her. There could be intimacy, closeness, real love and affection. 
whatever he was to others was almost irrelevant to her. To her, he was her dad. And that challenged me. Because the sovereign, eternal God, the creator God, the sustainer God, the judge of all, titles that are rightly his by choice. Yet because of the saving work of Jesus, we can call him our father. What an amazing thing that is for the children of God. This mighty one, this one of all glory and power and eternity. And yet, Christian, you know him as your father. In all the beauty and the intimacy and the closeness of that relationship. And John reminds us of that. And that is to encourage us as we go on in the Christian life. We move on from the beginning. Maybe we're no longer as active as once we were. Maybe we're conscious that there are others who do far more than we do now. Have more energy than us. But the relationship with our Father never changes. It always remains the same. And it should delight us. My parents had 49 years of marriage. It was certainly not a Hollywood love story. I can't say there was never a crossword or a hard time. But I remember so clearly the last time I saw my dad alive. In a hospital bed, weak and ready to go. And my mum was sat there beside him. They were saying nothing. The activity was gone. The passions and the anger of 49 years was put behind them. There was nothing more to be said. They just lay, he lay there, mum sat beside him, holding hands. And you could see looking at them that there was a total empathy between them. And so it should be with our Heavenly Father. When all the words and all the activities are put aside, the lovely relationship remains forever. He is always our father. And so the end of this is that we are not to love the world. Not that we don't enjoy the beauty of creation. Of course we should. Of course we should enjoy the many good things that God provides for us in the world for our enjoyment. But what we're not to do is to love them with the love that should be for him. It sounds so right. It's impossible for the unbeliever. It's a challenge for the Christian. And that's why John wants to put this in the context that he has. A consequence of being forgiven. The knowledge of having overcome. But above all else, the joy and delight of knowing the Father. And so in the light of those great truths, he's saying it's possible and it's desirable and it's achievable to set the love of the world aside, to love one another as believers and to delight in our Father. 
In fact, when you put it in the terms that he has for us here, there's no excuse for failure, is there? And there's no reason for failure. So let's take our encouragement and our confidence from him and his word and get on with the business of being conformed to the likeness or the image of his son, Romans 8 and 29. And let's live to please him. But not least, because we know God as our father. May that be true for each one of us here. Amen.